Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here. On today's podcast, we're featuring Bonnie Kaplan, PhD. She's a professor emeritus in the Cumming School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. She has published widely on the biological basis of developmental disorders and mental health particularly the contribution of nutrition to mental health. Her efforts to educate about the role of nutrition in brain health resulted in her selection in 2017 as one of 150 Canadian difference makers in mental health in honor of Canada's 150th birthday. In 2019, she was honored with the Dr. Rogers Prize for Excellence in Integrative Complementary Medicine. In 2021, she was chosen as one of the top seven over 70 in Calgary, partly for her book, The Better Brain, written with Professor Julia Rutledge and published by HarperCollins, as well as her two charitable funds that support research by junior colleagues to study nutrition and mental health. So far, she's raised over a million dollars Canadian. Her primary goal is to bring nutrition education and treatment to the forefront of mental health care. The best news is Dr. Kaplan is coming to my hometown, Perry Sound, on November 2nd to present at the Stocky Center on the topic of the importance of nutrition for brain health and resilience. This event was going to be hosted at the Perry Sound Hospital, but apparently a doctor there was opposed to it. They essentially stated her work was not based in science. Hmm. I found this so hard to believe since Bonnie has spent so much of her life in the field of research and has 142 peer-reviewed publications to prove it. So as a community of passionate people about a food-as-medicine approach to mental health, to enhance mental health, we found a way to host her here anyways and for free to the general public. So all are welcome to attend this event, which will be held from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. November 2nd at the Stocky Center in Perry Sound. All donations are going to two local programs to provide fresh food for their participants. One is called The Drop, and they support local youth. And the other is Hope Pregnancy Center, which supports local pregnant moms. Thanks to Home Depot and Sweet Sobriety for sponsoring this event. Now here's Bonnie. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. This is Clarissa. And today we have Dr. Bonnie Kaplan. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Great. Well, we do love for our audience to get to know our guest. So would you mind sharing your personal and professional story and what led you to write the book, Better Brain, Overcome Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition? And were there some aha moments along the way? Oh, there were lots of aha moments. But you know, I'm going to start at the end of the story. 
I wrote that book with my former student, Julia Rutledge, who for 20 years now has been living in New Zealand. She's on the faculty at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. And she and I shared an enormous frustration. I remember when we had something like 10 articles in peer-reviewed journals showing the importance of nutrition for mental health. And we thought, oh, at last we have, there are 10 peer-reviewed studies. People will wake up and pay attention. <laughs> and now we're over 50 and they're still not paying attention. We have a long way to go. And we said, enough with trying to get, you know, to the policymakers, although I am actually working on that. Let's educate the general public. The general public needs to know that you cannot live on air and chemicals and water and have a healthy brain or body. So let's pull together all the research and the logic and what we know about the biological basis and what nutrients do in our brains. And let's write it at the level that anybody who is interested in this topic would see this as something worth reading. So it was very interesting because I'm often asked, Clarissa, how long did it take you to write this book? It can take so long to write a book. Julie and I were obviously very on top of the literature, having contributed a great deal to it ourselves. And frankly, I don't remember how many months it took, but I think we had it a complete first draft in three or four months. And then there was editing and cutting and cutting and cutting you know, because it was too long. But we knew what we wanted to say. We were both giving so many talks to the general public. We knew what the public wanted to know and needed to know and needed to learn. So we wrote that book out of frustration because we saw that people really needed to know this information and no one was presenting it. That's amazing that you stepped up and you did the work, You right? You wrote it and now you're promoting it. I know that you've been on summits before and any chance that I think probably that you're given, you probably take in and out, you know, to kind of talk about this kind of thing. And I was recently watching some interviews that you did and I just, I was so excited to be able to be here. So thanks again for inviting me along, Clarissa. And so Bonnie, I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us about how food and nutrition do impact our mental health, because obviously Clarissa and I work in this world, right? At that intersection of disordered eating and addiction, we're both mental health professionals And just from a professional perspective and a personal perspective, I want to know how does what I'm putting into my mouth impact whether or not I'm going to maybe be depressed or anxious or mood swings or anything that, you know, kind of comes along with what we think about when we think of this big umbrella of like mental health or mental wellness. Sure. That's a really important topic. I'm going to make a one preliminary comment, Molly, because you referred to, uh, how I've been talking a lot and actually getting losing my voice a lot because I'm talking so much, but that's okay. And you're right, I hardly ever turn down an opportunity to speak, but I have been amazed at how many people want to hear about this. And so I started keeping count basically because I had to keep a spreadsheet because I retired from the university in 2016. So I don't have anybody to do all the arrangements and all the emails and all that. So I started a spreadsheet and I keep track. And since the book came out, which is just a little over two years ago, I've given at least 150 lectures, podcasts, interviews, etc. And the feedback has been 
gratitude from people who say, why don't we know this? Why aren't we taught this in elementary school? So I'm going to tell you what we should have learned in elementary school to answer your more important question of how does food or nutrition impact our mental health? We are what we eat. My goodness, I remember hearing that saying in the 70s, and I didn't, I knew what it meant, but I didn't appreciate it in the broad sense. Because we need to really appreciate that we are what we eat. You need to know a little bit about what nutrients do in our brain and body, but we're focusing on nutrition above the neck here. So we're talking about brain health, right? So in terms of brain health, you know, I had a very physiological orientation in all of my training with postdocs in neuroscience, and I studied biochemistry and so forth. So I took for granted that people knew what cofactors were. And I found out that not even my physician colleagues knew what cofactors were. So the number one thing we should be teaching, in my opinion, starting in at least grade five or six, is that what we put into our mouth determines whether our brain metabolism has enough cofactors. Now, to understand that, you have to read chapter two or watch a five-minute video, which you can link to on my website. I hope you'll put my website as a link to the program notes. And I'll explain it very briefly for your listeners right now. Where do you go to eat serotonin, Molly? Yeah, well, right. I was going to say, I think, you know, the answer is something like either something that has tryptophan in it. So like turkey or chicken or something like vegetables. Okay, What's that? You know too much because you're right. You look for the precursors is the point you're making. If I could just abbreviate it because you cannot eat serotonin. You cannot eat dopamine. You cannot, I don't know of any plant or animal product that gives you the neurotransmitters that we all want to have in plentiful supply in our brains. So what we have to do is eat the building blocks, the precursors like tryptophan, which you were talking about. One of the amino acids is very important. And so what you need to know is that when you eat the building blocks, your very clever brain knows how to transform them into the neurotransmitters we need. But in order to do that and to make those that are all, we're almost all built out of enzyme reactions, enzymatic reactions, right? In order to enable those enzymes to do their work, to make those transformations, the enzymes need the gas for the engine, which is cofactors. And that's what vitamins and minerals are. The micronutrients, which is the word we usually use to refer to the roughly 30 vitamins and minerals that we need every minute of every day in our bloodstreams, those are the cofactors for all of the metabolism, not just in the brain, throughout our body. Every single cell in our brain and our body has mitochondria producing the energy molecule, ATP. What does a mitochondria need in order to produce ATP? It needs cofactors. It needs the nutrients that enable it to do its work. And by the way, that's our natural way to fight inflammation, but we'll maybe we'll talk about that later. So the question was, how does food or nutrition impact our mental health? If you accept that your mental health is a function of an optimally functioning brain, vitamins and minerals, especially, but also the amino acids and the essential fatty acids, but especially the vitamins and minerals provide the cofactors that enable your brain to work. And so if people understand that, 
then they'll understand why every bite that we put into our mouth is an opportunity to feed our brain or not. And unfortunately, most of our public now is choosing not to do that. So then is that like, because obviously lately in the news, we've been hearing we're in a time where mental health concerns are really at an all-time high. Some are even calling it a crisis. And do you think this has to do with our current food system? And then speaking like, what is a resilience food and how can that support our mental well-being? I'll answer this in reverse order, but if I forget to go back, you catch me. I will remind you. Yeah. Okay. I don't think there is a resilience food. There are people who get a lot of attention by saying, eat this, eat that. This, you know, I mean, that's not, to me, it's not the way to go. Michael Pollan's statement in, I've forgotten the year now, but like about 10 years ago, I think, really says it, eat food, okay? Not too much, mostly plants, but eat food. Right now, more than half of what our public is putting into their mouths is not food. So we need to step back and I need to define food for you, okay? Food is what we consume to build cells and to maintain cells. Most of what our public is putting in their mouths now is ultra-processed, industrialized chemicals. It's called ultra-processed food, UPFs. I don't like that term because it's not food. Those chemicals and the salts and the fats, they do nothing to build and sustain a healthy brain. Food is the real stuff. It's what our grandparents would have recognized, what they would have had in their kitchens, etc. So that's how we build resilience, is by eating food, not the chemicals. Now you asked me about, oh, whether or not the food system has a lot to do with mental health. I can make an ironclad case proving that the answer is yes. And I don't want to bore you or your audience by citing a lot of studies. We go through about a, a hundred studies we refer to, I think, in our book, correlational, longitudinal, prospective studies, on-off control, randomized control trials, the whole bit. And we prove the data are there. It's totally empirically based that what we consume influences our resilience. That's been shown. Julie and I showed that with the disaster studies. Do you know about those? Yeah. I w- can you speak about them, actually? I would love you because our audience actually loves study. They love research. They are very informed consumers. So this will speak very well to them. Okay. So this might be a little bit of a long answer, but it's a very dramatic story. So in 2009, Julia started publishing on nutrition and mental health. Basically, I had gone there in 2003 to New Zealand as a visiting scholar, showed her our preliminary data, gave talks on our early data. I'd started publishing in 2000 and said, Julie, you've got to look at this. It's real. (laughs) It took her a little while. She was as skeptical as I was. We just really, we had, you know, we're all a product of our education, right? I mean, Clarissa, everybody knows that. And she and I were both taught that nutrition was of trivial influence for mental health. Nothing could be further from the truth. So anyway, in 2009, Julia started getting some very interesting results and started publishing on it. And then in 2010, if you remember, there was a massive earthquake in Christchurch. And it was right in the middle of a study that she was doing. And she had the incredible wherewithal to go and find the people who had been evaluated for the study 
And she happened to be able to find roughly, because people were displaced, it was really chaotic, roughly 15 people who had been taking a broad spectrum of micronutrients at the time of the earthquake, and about 15 people who had been in the study, but for whatever reason, they were in a different phase of the study. And so they weren't taking micronutrients at the time of that earthquake. And she compared the data, and my goodness, it was perfectly clear that those who were taking the micronutrients were much more resilient to the stress that was created by that awful earthquake. Now, that's not a randomized trial, but that came later because then for five months, they had aftershocks, which are, to me, they would be 8,000 earthquakes, but they called them aftershocks. So it was a very stressed population. And at the end of the five months in February of 2011, they had another even more massive earthquake, which killed a couple hundred people and destroyed over a third of the downtown. It was huge. And so in that setting, Julia actually did a randomized controlled trial of the general population and showed that those who took micronutrients recovered better within four to six weeks. Their stress levels were in the normal range compared to people who were going through treatment as usual. Then a couple years later, we had an enormous flood where I live in Southern Alberta one of these one in a hundred years that we're afraid is going to be more frequent than that now with climate change, but it was massive. We didn't have 8,000 of them. We had one huge flood on one day, and it wasn't an already stressed population. And a lot of us, like I live on a hill, so we put on rubber boots and we just went out and helped people dig out of the mud. So there was lots of support. But I did a randomized trial and I really didn't think with Julia because she still had all of her internet-based measures up and so we used the same system. I really didn't think we would see in one day of, of a flood what she had seen with the earthquakes, but we exactly replicated the results. Ours also was randomized and we had three arms to the study. And if I'm going on too long, you'll cut out some of this later. That's okay. But one group got broad spectrum micronutrient formula that covered all the micronutrients, roughly 30 of them. And one group got B-complex because there is a literature in the so-called normal population, you know, college students, whatever. I don't know who's normal anymore post-pandemic, but showing that just taking a B-complex after breakfast every day, always on a full stomach, improves resilience. So, and we showed that it did. And it also in four to six weeks, people did very well. And then our third arm was an active comparator. In these crisis situations, using a placebo is unethical. Okay. So there was no, nobody would join a study with a placebo. They're also desperate for help and, and it would be horrendous. So our third group got a thousand IUs of vitamin D, which we know vitamin D is very good for all kinds of things going on in the body. But really, is a show, what we showed is it didn't do much for their stress and anxiety. So now we have that randomized trial. And then there's one more step in this story. Along come those horrible mosque murders where a crazy terrorist entered two mosques in Christchurch an already traumatized population and, you know, used automatic weapons and killed a lot of people and injured a lot of people. And they had a very traumatized population again. 
there was no way you could use a placebo. In fact, there was really no way to do a controlled trial. And so Julia collected data on people who wanted to take one of the formulas, a broad-spectrum micronutrient formula, and they volunteered to just be monitored clinically. And they exactly replicated the results. So now we have all kinds of situations showing in four to six weeks, resilience is very much improved if you improve your micronutrient intake, however you do it, okay? I don't remember why, but launched into that long story. You've got to get me back on track here. (laughs) Well, I think what that does lead into then is like my next question was, you know, then is a whole food diet sufficient for everyone? When we think about these disasters and the information that you were able to kind of glean from your random controlled trials, you know, and giving people, you know, specific formulas of things and testing them against, you know, just a B complex or just vitamin D. Is whole food enough for us to be consuming in the environment and the world we live in today? I'm so glad you asked me that question, Molly. It's such an important one. I'm a whole foods person first, and so is Julia. We are acutely aware of the inadequacy of our food supply right now and how the things they're making it inadequate. Yet, that doesn't mean you should eat less of it. It just means you should eat more of it and stop, just stop eating the chemicals. There is just no reason on earth to drink sugar drinks or empty calories, we used to call them more junk food, or I call them ultra processed rubbish. There is no point. Does that mean I never eat a chocolate chip cookie? No, (laughs) that's my weakness. Once in a while, they look really good, but eat whole foods. But there's a big but coming up. We know that in physical health, a very, very famous biochemist in the US, Bruce Ames, put together in 2002, a summary of roughly 50 genetic mutations that caused humans to need unusually large amount of vitamins to be cofactors in their bodies in order to avoid having symptoms of various kinds. And the reason they needed them is that they had an inherited predisposition for those enzymes to not be sticky enough, not be able to grab enough of the micronutrients that were the cofactors. So you had to flood the metabolic steps with lots of cofactors, and then people could get rid of their symptoms. No one has studied that yet in mental health, but we think that it's perfectly consistent with what we see, which is that some people eat a really, really, really good diet. We all know what it is, the Mediterranean style, half your plate being fruits and vegetables, whole foods, healthy diet, and they still have symptoms and they get better when they take a broad spectrum micronutrient formula. So there must be this variation of inherited predisposition. And by the way, someone far more senior to me, Linus Pauling, a Nobel Prize winner, in the 1960s predicted exactly that. He was discussing, and we have this quote in our book, he was discussing how some people have mental illness running in their families, and what is it that would be inherited? Because it's not actual, I mean, you know, there's nothing been found in spite of millions of dollars spent for genetics research. 
very little. They say that 5% of the variance in mental health has been explained by the results of all that money. But Linus Pauling said, you know, what's probably inherited is something involving the regulation of the essential nutrients in the brain. And so he predicted exactly this. And I've seen it myself in some people who eat very, very well. I've seen them get much better when they take the, take a micronutrient formula. But first, they should clean up their diet, right? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, right? Food first and then see how you feel. And then is even then we know the potential is still there. We certainly interviewed Julia Ross and she talks a lot about amino acids and how that can really help people with mood and craving when they supplement with those. And we also had a wonderful woman on who's Brenda, who spoke about DNA and we had our DNA done And within that, I found out that I'm somebody who actually doesn't make 5-HTP. And so therefore, I have to supplement with it. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about, is that essentially what could be happening for people if they're not getting enough out of their whole foods? You know, we all know about macronutrients, which are the fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, What are micronutrients? Like when you say broad spectrum micronutrients, can you explain a little bit more for the listener? Like what are these and how do they, like we know they're cofactors now, but like maybe can you name a few just to help us give a bit more understanding? Sure. It's basically every vitamin and mineral that you've ever heard of, about 15 of each. And the reason I, uh, I'm so glad you caught me on this, I try not to use any undefined terms or jargon, but they slip out. So there are lots and lots of people who keep asking me, which vitamins should I take? Which minerals should I take? And we call it magic bullet thinking. And it's not the way our brain works. I mean, it's interesting what you discovered about yourself, but by and large, we don't have tests yet that can tell you whether you need more magnesium than I do, or I need more vitamin B6 than you do for optimal brain function. We don't have those yet. We don't even have ability to test the circulating levels in our brain. We only can study, you know, in your arm, the peripheral blood levels, and that's not sufficient. No, I'm just curious. Yeah, with that being, you know, and I heard you talked before in other interviews about it's not like we're missing that one micronutrient or that one mineral or that one vitamin and that a lot of studies in the past have focused, tried to focus on singular potential things. And what you found is like there's more value in the broad spectrum, as you say, in terms of giving everyone the full dose of what they may benefit from. That's right. Actually, I think I can summarize it this way. We needed a term to refer to having lots and lots of vitamins and minerals. And so that's why we tend to say broad spectrum. But generally in our writings, that means at least 25 of of the roughly 30 vitamins and minerals, okay? There's a very solid literature showing clinical benefit from a broad spectrum formula. The only other area I can point to that shows is solid in terms of the scientific support, the evidence base, is using B-complex, which is just a few B vitamins, for resilience, let's call it, okay, in the general population. 
I've never seen even an anecdote that a B complex will get rid of a mood dysregulation, bipolar disorder, ADHD, psychosis, et cetera. For anything genuinely a mental disorder, then you have to look at the broad spectrum formulas. Okay. Does that help? Yeah. So as you were hearing about like what micronutrients are and this idea of broad spectrum, and there's no like kind of like magic bullet or this magical thinking of like just this one, and I just have to narrow it down to this one and everything will be better. I have kind of a two-part question to follow up or just for more clarification. What about, so we have clients who eat anywhere from carnivore to vegan and everything in between, whatever label they want to put on it. So what about the clients who don't consume animal protein? Are they still getting the benefits that they could from a whole food diet? I mean, are they getting that broad spectrum of micronutrients if they're not eating animal protein and vice versa, if they're not eating plants? Certainly, I worry about the people who are not eating plants. And because of a variety of reasons, I live with one foot in the world of autism spectrum disorders, and they are just terrible for that. The the beige diet, the brown diet, you know, and anything with color is and texture is yucky to them. They are not getting the micronutrients they need almost universally. The people who choose not to eat meat, I think for environmental reasons, we all need to cut way down on our meat. There is a tiny bit of research suggesting that people who don't eat meat might not be, well, they might be more vulnerable to depression and anxiety. I haven't read this literature carefully. I don't think the final word, the final story is in yet, but I think that we should choose the amount of meat that we eat for other reasons. You're not getting a lot of micronutrients through um, meat, but you are getting iron, obviously, and B12, etc. These are really, really important ones. But I really think that the the way to go is, now you didn't ask about the real specialty diets, the uh, the gluten-free, the what else, ketogenic, blah, 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 etc. But as a first step, everyone would be well to just eat real food. It might include meat, might not include meat according to tastes and preferences. Maybe somewhere down the line, they'll want to try intermittent fasting, ketogenic, whatever. Don't start there. I've seen, especially maybe because I live in the world of mental disorders of all kinds, I've seen people beat themselves up when they fail. They try something and fail, right? I mean, talk about the negative self-talk is enormous. So don't jump into a really restrictive intermittent fasting kind of thing or something if you don't think you can do it. Start by something that, frankly, is easy. Eat real food. It's the way our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents ate. So that's what we need to do first. And we have a chapter of recipes in the book, which include some meat recipes, but a lot of vegetable things. And don't buy the book for that chapter, by the way. You can get way more on the internet, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Bonnie, you're speaking our language because both Molly and I are harm reduction clinicians and we also work in the field of eating disorders. And so, you know, that restriction can sometimes be very triggering for, like you said, negative self-talk. It can also create binge behavior around some of those foods we're trying to avoid. What I was wondering if you could speak to is you did work with someone to develop these micronutrient formulas and you know, just to be able to, before we dive into ADHD or addiction specifically, can you talk a little bit about how these formulas were developed, who you worked with, 
the research behind that just so the listener can be aware of like, you know, it's not just this randomized thing that was developed. It actually took many years of development. Actually, sure. I have to correct the misimpression first. I never did work on developing any formula anywhere, but two men in Southern Alberta made the observation that the children of one of them, can I use names and everything here? Absolutely. All right. Well, maybe I'll just preface it by pointing out that I'm not affiliated with the people or companies I'm about to talk about. I've never taken a dime from any of them, and I don't even take a discount if I decide to buy a product from them. So I'm very much arm's length away because I lived in the era where there was no corruption of the psychiatric literature through the era when pharmaceutical companies started paying for the results they wanted, and I saw the corruption. I want no part of that. So none of the research on the formulas I'm about to talk about has ever been funded by the companies because we won't take money from them. Now, who are they? Well, two guys named Tony Stefan and David Hardy lived in Southern Alberta. David has passed away now, but there are two families down there close to the Montana border. And they were talking because Tony Stefan had seen a lot of mental illness in his wife who committed suicide in her family. Her father had committed suicide and he was seeing severe mental illness in at least two of their children. David Hardy had no experience in mental illness, but he had 20 years of experience working on animal feed, farm animal feed. And of course, Alberta has lots of cattle and pigs and what we feed them matters. In fact, to the government, it matters more than what we feed our people which is really quite shocking, but it is true. And so David said, I, you know, I've basically, I wasn't there, but he must have said something like, I feel for what you're going through. The medications aren't helping your daughter and son. Have you thought of trying what we use with violent pigs and with cattle that are agitated and stressed out? And we use micronutrients. And so they started experimenting and they just went to a drugstore. They did not use anything for cattle or pigs in people. They just went to a drugstore and got vitamins and minerals and they started experimenting on Tony's two kids. And as those two kids became well and went off of their medication because they no longer needed it, they realized they were onto something and they started helping others in their community And then they went to a neuroscientist at the university closest to them, University of Lethbridge, and said, we think we found something interesting. And that professor, Brian Cole, was a highly respected neuroscientist in Canada. And Brian said, look, I study rats. I'm a basic neuroscientist. But, you know, I know somebody up in Calgary who's really interested in nutrition, and that was me. And so he contacted me and I said, Brian, I don't want to meet with them because I know that nutrition is not very important for mental health. That's what I said, because that's what I've been taught. Forgive me, you know, but it's true. So I said, but Brian, if you'll help them, I'll send you down some, I faxed him some measures that we use in people. And I put it out of my mind. And that was in May of 1996. And in August, he sent me a fax and it showed an analysis of variants and some data. And it had the word vitamins on it, which was wrong. It was vitamins and minerals. But anyway, and I picked up the phone. I said, what are you doing that's making these people better? And he said, I told you, you should meet with these two guys. So I did. And that became my adventure. (laughs) I had a history of studying nutrition 
and various things. But I had really gotten quite fed up with, as I said, I met with all the flakes in Alberta. I didn't want to meet two more. So that's, and when Julia heard my preliminary date in 2003, she didn't believe, she believed me because she knew me, but she said, you know, it sounds kind of interesting, but it can't be of broad relevance or we would have learned about it. Isn't that awful that we trust our education like that? But the education isn't there. And that's what I'm trying to change. So they started a company called True Hope. And if anybody listening wants to look them up, it's truehope.com. And then a few years later, they had a parting of the ways, which happens in business. And David Hardy, who was the real uh, nutrition genius, really, who put together the formula. I mean, what he did is he said, let's just get everything in balance, but let's give them all of the micronutrients and additionally, some amino acids and some anti-inflammatories, right? Antioxidants. Anyway, they split up and David formed a second company called Hardy Nutritionals because his last name was Hardy and his family, the Hardy family is still running that company and it's hardynutritionals.com. So anybody can read their websites and, but they have very similar approaches, very similar perspectives to us researchers who have continued studying both formulas and also an additional one that I can't go into right now. But to us, we always were studying a concept. Does that make sense, Clarissa and Molly? We were studying the concept of forget one nutrient at a time. Let's give the brain everything that it needs, just the way I think many of our grandparents did. And let's see if it helps with brain health. And boy, it sure does. Before we move to the next question, I'm sorry, I just want to ask, is there too much when it comes to micronutrients? Yeah. Like, can there be, yeah. Yeah, really important question. We have published tons of data on adverse events, they're called. And we always get some headaches and stomach aches. Often in the placebo arm, there are more headaches and stomach aches. I mean, kids, adults, people get headaches and stomach aches, not necessarily because of the micronutrients. But there's never yet been a serious adverse event reported from any of these. And there's a reason why. First of all, most of these things are, you know, the ones that you store and you could go too high on like vitamin A, are not, they're not given in too high a form. There are no mega doses of anything, the massive doses. These are not massive doses, but they are above what the typical RDA is or RNI, depending on on your country. So if you get too much and you don't need it, you pee it out because they're water soluble. It's only some things like vitamin A or something where you could take a massive amount and hurt a person, but nobody's giving a massive amount. So there would be no interaction with any other medications or anything that I would need to be concerned about is what I just, yeah, wanted to follow up on. Never question, Clarissa. There is an interaction with medication and they always blame the micronutrients, whereas in the medication, here's what we think is happening. We understand that these micronutrients are creating healthier brains and we know that That means that what used to be an appropriate therapeutic dose of a psychiatric medication becomes an overdose. And so the companies provide training, and there's also training by the Psychopharmacology Institute by a child and adolescent psychiatrist named Dr. Amelia Villagomez, and I can send links to people if they want it, teaching people what we call a cross-titration. You never stop your medications to 
take a, a multivitamin or mineral. But as the vitamins and minerals are improving your brain health, they will increase the side effects of the drugs. And then you know it's time to start slowly, slowly decreasing the medication. If that's not done, people will get worse. And unfortunately, traditional psychiatrists see people getting worse and say, oh, let's increase the medication. No. Or they say, stop those unhealthy vitamins and minerals. Well, I mean, we wouldn't have a human species on the planet if we didn't have vitamins and minerals. We need those. So anyway, it's been quite, we keep trying to educate people about the cross titration. So it would be important if I'm going to start taking some of these broad spectrum micronutrients that I inform my psychiatrist or physician or pharmacist just to let them know so that we can create a treatment plan around the implementation of them. But yeah, the answer is partially yes, but it's not enough because many doctors know they just weren't taught about nutrition, right? But both of the companies, I think now, certainly Hardy Nutritionals, I think True Hope to routinely educate clinicians of any kind about the cross titration, about how to use their formulas. So go online, explore their websites. And I'm sorry, I don't look at their websites often enough to know. No, I'll link them in the show for sure to make sure everyone has that information as well. And I think that that is, it adds so much value to say like, these are the, you know, people who develop these, they have probably had a lot of these questions already and have a lot of the information that you might need and would be able to guide you in the right place. So I think that's excellent information. So I know in your book, you have kind of, you talk about stress, you talk about depression and particular interest, I think for our audience would be ADHD, because we also know that, you know, connection to, for a lot of people, addiction. So we have some clients who are really hesitant to take stimulant medications for this reason of a pre-existing addiction to food or other substances and others who have pre-existing heart conditions and can't take stimulant medications. So I'm wondering if you can speak to the benefits of micronutrients with ADHD. Can you explain kind of how they work and maybe what some of the studies you have done have shown? Okay. Actually, the evidence is stronger for ADHD than any other disorder right now. So I'm happy to do that. There are three totally independent placebo-controlled randomized trials. And I already told you in some situations, it's hard to use a placebo, but in all of these, they were able to. And the result is that the there is stronger evidence for ADHD than any other disorder right now because there are three independent randomized trials. And the World Federation of the Societies of Biological Psychiatry has looked at the first two of those three randomized trials. The third one came out a few months after they did their evaluation. But at any rate, just based on the first two, they gave the evidence a grade of A. And the A is based on two trials It just happens that all of these were done with the broad spectrum formula made by Hardy Nutritionals, which is called Daily Essential Nutrients or DEN. We call it DEN. The research on the True Hope formula and Power Plus and variations of that continues also, but this is one disorder, three independent studies, all use DEN. 
So they looked at the first two and said, this is an evidence grade of A and we'll continue to watch it and weekly recommend it now. But now that the third trial has come out and it's even stronger and it's a multi-center trial, multi-country, both Canada and the U.S., and completely consistent with the first two, I'm pretty sure their next evaluation will strongly recommend that DEN be a first-line treatment. So what did they find? Well, the first trial was done by Julia Rutledge in New Zealand in adults, and it was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry. And it showed that roughly 50% of the adults with ADHD were much to very much improved. That's a very high bar. And then the second one, also done by Julia, published in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, was children with ADHD also half were much to very much improved. And then the third one was the multi-center trial run out of Oregon Health and Science Center, published in the Journal of Child Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And over 50% of those children were much to very much improved. Now that sounds wonderful, but I need to add a footnote as to what improved. Over all of the literature on ADHD, we have different symptoms improving more than others, but the most consistent symptom to improve is mood dysregulation. And like the multicenter trial was done only, the kids had to not just have ADHD. Remember what the three cardinal symptoms are of ADHD, inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. There's nothing there about mood dysregulation. So they also required that the kids have trouble with irritability and mood regulation, because in all of our other studies in various disorders, those were always the symptoms that were the easiest to ameliorate. And sure enough, what they found was mood dysregulation was the symptom that improved the most. I find that really interesting because I spent years studying ADHD. And I, as I met so many families whose kids had ADHD. And in all that time, I met one child who was a sweetheart, okay, <laughs> only one. And all the others could be so irritable and so grumpy and so, you know, living with them was like walking on eggshells, etc. And I know that that is what drives parents to seek treatment more than the symptoms of ADHD. So if we can have an impact on the irritability, the explosive rage, the unanticipated black, you know, walking on eggshells effect, then that's going to bring a lot of help to the parents. Will it necessarily enable them to focus significantly better? Not always. And so like I'll refer to Dr. Amelia Villagomez again, who has a lot of experience with this. She uses tiny, tiny doses of stimulant medication sometimes to help the kids be able to focus on their schoolwork. But because they're also on a therapeutic dose of a broad spectrum formula, you can't give them a normal dose of a stimulant medication or they'll be wild. They have to have a very tiny dose introduced very slowly. Well, that's a good news story because then you don't have as many side effects from the medication. Good news for everybody but the pharmaceutical companies. 
Yeah, so that's true, right? So if I was somebody who was already on a stimulant medication, and again, I'm thinking about introducing this DEN formula, it would be really good to reach out to these companies to see what the interaction might be or think about potentially reducing my stimulant medication dose once I start these. Yes, get their guidance for sure. By the way, I'm speaking to definitely some Canadians here, Molly, I guess you're an American, but that what I just told you about with the World Federation of Societies of Biological Psychiatry, that report was endorsed by the Canadian network that is known as CANMAT, which has been around a long time. It's the Canadian Network for Mood and Anxiety Treatments Task Force. So we should be learning more about it in Canada too. So thinking about what was found out of those ADHD trials and you know outcomes from those trials and thinking that the mood dysregulation was across the board, it was the, the most likely to be improved by these broad spectrum formulas. Would it be a stretch to say that those same formulas or maybe not even those same formulas, but some spectrum or broad spectrum of the micronutrients would be helpful for anybody who maybe has depression or has been told they have treatment resistant depression, or even the flip side of that, oftentimes, you know, two sides of the same coin, the anxiety piece, do the micronutrients make any sort of difference for individuals with either or both of those diagnoses? So as usual, I have sort of a long answer and you can decide what to keep. Okay. So in Julia's first ADHD trial that I mentioned was in adults, They measured mood and found, even though they were not selecting for or against depression, that a quarter of the sample had met criteria for depression. And so they looked at mood after the end of the trial and found a very dramatic improvement in depression. But scientifically, that's kind of second rate. It's not, it's like a secondary analysis. They weren't selected for depression. So we still need a randomized controlled trial where people are selected for depression. However, what we do have is a really excellent body of literature showing improvement in depression in adults in four different randomized trials where people were taught to eat better. And so all four of these came from the continent of Australia, but they're four independent laboratories. They were all in adults and they all selected people with different criteria, different measures. One was major depressive disorder, others was levels of depression, but they were all depressed adults and who weren't eating very well, according to our, you know, what we all know is a proper diet. And they were randomized. That's really important. Randomization is very important. So people didn't get to choose what they got. Some got an education about how to eat a whole foods kind of diet, a Mediterranean style of diet. Some got the active comparator. There's no placebo for whole diet, but we should give people, right? So, but there is an active comparator that you can use, peer counseling, support, etc., which by the way, helped many people. And we need to remember that, that we need to be supportive and help our friends who are struggling and so forth. So that was nice to see. But the people who got education and were compliant with changing their diet to a better diet had very dramatic improvements in their mood. 
even remission of depression, no longer meeting criteria for depression. And these were typically 12-week trials, whereas the micronutrients you can see in effect a little faster. What we really need is to take the people who didn't get better with the whole foods diet and maybe people in your audience who have said, I've done everything I can to improve my diet and randomize them to get a micronutrient formula, broad spectrum or a placebo. Nobody has done that yet. Maybe it's just still to come. And it's a great idea. And it makes a lot of sense, right? We need to do it. Someone has to do it. Maybe somebody in your audience will tell me that they are uh, scientifically trained and are willing to do it. And I'll try to make it happen. Awesome. Well, we would love that. (laughs) So in your last chapter, you write about, you know, the role of nutrients and brain function should be taught to physicians and other clinicians. And that for those individuals who are really opposed to it, like you used to be, it stems from a lack of education or training around nutrition and the benefits of it. So I have a personal passion in this and that you were slated to present at Perry Sound Hospital. And just because one doctor decided that your information was not based in science, that the hospital decided not to host it. And so instead, a group of us to have put it together at a different location. Now, I am wondering, as someone who has spent their whole life in research, well, a lot of their life doing the research, and I think I found like 142 peer-reviewed publications that you participated in, and even more as a team member, how would you respond to this? Because I know that you, from listening to many of your talks and just with your level of education, you're not opposed to people being on medications when it is medically necessary. So where do you think this comes from? And have you run into this before? Oh my goodness. Of course, I've run into it before. I've been rejected by the best. (laughs) Well, maybe not the best that they rejected information, right? But yeah, it, it hasn't been often But I can think of two other situations where I was invited to do a talk or a podcast and then I was canceled. And I certainly, one thing I have experienced multiple times is being invited to present to an academic and hospital department of psychiatry in several cities and the psychiatrists stay away in droves. I mean, it's the frontline workers who come and I'm delighted, but the people with the power, they don't, you know, you know, a lot of people are insecure about not knowing. And so a lot of physicians are beginning to acknowledge that they just don't know about enough about nutrition. But historically, that's been a tough nut to crack the psychiatry world. At one time, I was invited by the head of a department. And then he said, Oh, sorry, Bonnie, I can't be there that day. And I thought, well, why did you? (laughs) That one really stood out. Why did he invite me for that day? Or another time I was presenting at one of our most senior psychiatry departments and told, well, that's very interesting, but come back when you have randomized trials. So I contacted them after there were a bunch of randomized trials. They didn't even answer, not even a reply. I mean, it's just the way it is. We will drag them kicking and screaming into the world of nutrition and health. But that's why we wrote our book for the general public. I mean, it was a little bit hard You know, Julia has the most active research laboratory in the world on nutritional treatments right now. And we're constantly writing for academic scientific audiences. And so it's a little hard to convince ourselves that we really needed to tell lots of stories and anecdotes and 
which we ended up enjoying, but to write for the general audience, the general public. Yeah. It, sometimes I just think like, if you're out there and you're doing what you can do to educate, train, like make somebody aware, right? Put it on their radar that, hey, this could be a thing. And they're plugging their ears and it's like, no, 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 no. I'm not listening to you. Right. <laughs> yeah. At some point you're like, okay, well, nuts to this. I'll go to the people. It'll be a ground, you know, ground up. It'll be a grassroots kind of thing because, you know, the people are the ones who are suffering, right? Like, yes, I'm a person who works in the trenches, but I've also been in the trenches as that person going, something's wrong. And I went to medical professionals for almost two decades before somebody said like, oh, ding, ding, ding. Maybe I know, right? Not, not just dismissing me because I'm a woman or because I'm this or because I'm that and you're crazy. It's all in your head. Oh, it's so normal. It's like, that's not, it's actually not normal. And it's even if it is, I'm not comfortable with it or it's not okay. Something needs to change. You know, so I think when somebody like yourself and Julia can get together and write this book and you put this knowledge into our hands, it gives us the power to make better choices. It gives us the power to go to our medical professionals. And I don't, again, like I don't live in Canada, so I'm not really sure entirely how it works within your medical system. But I know if I go to my general physician and I say, listen, I want to try this, that, or the other thing, and they refuse, I can say, put that in my medical chart. I want it documented that I asked for an, a medical intervention and you refused. And then sometimes they're like, yep, absolutely not a problem. I don't care. I'll do it. And, but other times they'll be like, oh, well, why do we have to do that? I'm like, well, because I asked for help and you won't help me. So I want that documented because when I go to the next person, when I find that person that's going to help me, I want them to know who came before them that wouldn't help me. And then they start thinking about it a whole lot differently. So I just really appreciate when you give us, you know, again, like a blueprint from which to work from. You empower us to be able to go and advocate for our own needs to be met. And that's important. So I just appreciate you and the work that you've done and all the time you spent with us here today. That's very interesting, Molly. Well, the the book is, is uh, we've written a book that won't go out of date. You know, I mean, it won't have all the newest research, but it teaches why you know, your brain is hungry and why you need to feed your brain. And that won't change. And it, the sales have not, it's been two years and they're not slowing down there. If anything's speeding up. And I guess that's why people yeah. need to know this stuff. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And you continue to get out there and speak, even if you are starting to lose your voice, even <laughs> even if you are told no sometimes, or you're invited and then turned away. So what is next for you? I know that this event in Perry Sound is coming up in November, but what's next? Is there another book on the horizon, like a, a second edition, an update, a study or a, a random control trial? I mean, I know you said you retired from the university, but that hasn't stopped you, it seems like. No, when I was preparing to retire, I decided I would work on two things and it, it was a good choice. They're the two things that I spend all my time on. One is knowledge translation, and that's why I talk to anybody who is a legitimate. I've had a little, a few weird requests, but otherwise, anybody who wants to talk to me, I'll give a lecture, a talk, a podcast to. And also, I've just been counseling and working with and guiding, I'm not the only one, but a group of medical students at the University of Alberta who have gotten the first ever in Alberta elective on nutrition and health, starting actually the end of this month. And I have one lecture to give for that course. So that, you know, like that's seeing education translated, that's knowledge translation. 
The other thing that I decided to do just before I retired is I set up two charitable funds for which I don't get any money. But I decided that all these people who want to study, not that many people, but Julie and Jenny and Johnstone, I've mentioned, and there are a few others, Brenda Leung at University of Lethbridge, they need funding. And governments are still wanting to fund magic bullets. I mean, it's just phenomenal. They want you to just study one nutrient at a time. And that's not the way the brain works. So it's very hard for them to get the traditional funding. So I set up the two charitable funds. Why two? One in the U.S. and one in Canada. It just makes it easier for people to get charitable tax receipts. And I have raised and distributed over a million dollars Canadian, right, that's supporting these people. It's nowhere near enough. I mean, pharmaceutical trials, every single trial costs, I think, on average, over $8 million now. So, oh, yeah, drug companies know how to spend money as well as uh, collect money. So, We need more money. We more importantly, we really need more young scientists willing to study this, people interested in mental health, not clinicians with all due respect. They struggle and struggle and they they have trouble getting research off the ground. So knowledge translation and raising money for my junior colleagues has occupied me a lot and um, both are going pretty well. We'll make sure to link those charitable donation organizations as well in the show notes as well. So we do have a signature question before we let you go. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food and mental health, what would you tell her? I should have taken a traditional biochemistry course in my undergraduate years. And then I wouldn't have been so blind for as long as I was, but it took me a while to catch on to that. So I am biologically oriented. If I were more, my husband always says I'm not a real psychologist. I mean, my degrees are in psychology, but physiological psychology. So if I were more of a traditional psychologist, I would have said the same thing. Why didn't I go and learn about mindfulness or, you know, not physiological things, but why didn't I open myself up to non-traditional things? And I learned this lesson the hard way. And so I don't care how flaky a new idea is now. I try to bite my tongue and listen with an open mind because that's maybe that's the lesson. Be open-minded. Yes. Stay curious open-mindedness. That is absolutely something we encourage on this podcast. And we just really want to thank you so much for being a guest today on our show, Dr. Kaplan. Oh, it's a pleasure meeting you both. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.